The following is a Podcast One Minnesota production. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Oh, you betcha, yeah. If it's made in Minnesota, who's making it and how? Yeah, you got that right. It's the makers of Minnesota, focusing on the products and services uniquely made in Minnesota, and conversations with the makers, entrepreneurs, and innovators in Minnesota about how they conceived of their products and how they brought them to market. With Stephanie Hansen, it's the makers of Minnesota. This is Stephanie Hansen, and you are listening to The Makers of Minnesota, where we talk to cool people doing cool things in the state of Minnesota. Uh, Today I have a guest that is someone, he doesn't know this, but I've been wanting to talk to someone like him for a long time. His name is Jonathan Anderstrom, and he has a business called Creed Interactive, and they are located in Lower Town in St. Paul. So welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you're like my neighbor because I live by Lower Town, so you got that going for you. Right next door. Yes. Um, tell me how you first got into like the app world. Did you start out in like a traditional agency setting? It, yes, I did. Yeah, I, I worked at several of the largest ad agencies in town, and through a series of number of years, saw some of the great quality products that came out of those different shops, and like any. Um, Budding entrepreneur, I always thought about what it would be like someday when it was our turn to run the shop. And through a sequence of events, um, right before the recession in 2007, was uh, faced with some of the the dark side of the industry. Yeah, um, yeah. Like layoffs and... Well, actually, um, what they called it was over-promising and under-delivering. But what it turned into was some deception that occurred. And I got into a moral dilemma where I needed to make a choice on whether I was going to tell the truth to a client or if I was going to be honest. And that honesty ultimately made me quit my job. <laughs> I'm so sorry that that no. happened. Well, it was perfect timing because it was the start of a recession and my, my wife and co-founder was eight months pregnant with a second born child and we just bought a house. So who doesn't want to start a business right then, right? <laughs> oh my gosh. So uh, we did not have any other option but to succeed when we started to launch Creed. So uh, you started the business with your wife. Correct. Uh, did that mean that you were both literally unemployed at the same time trying to launch this business? Um, it didn't feel that way, but I guess technically true. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. no benefits package, or maybe you had Correct. Cobra from the previous yep, job. Yeah, we carried but... over a Cobra, and then we had a, about a six-month runway before our Cobra ran out, oh. and so we, we had to make it fly by then. And any entrepreneur listening to this program, like you think, okay, we're going to launch this day. And I don't know anyone that actually launches on the day that they say. When you left the traditional agency world, did you know, like, was your skill set in interactive and did you know you were going to be building apps? Yes, it was. Um, it was a combination of some of the marketing and advertising components with some of the technology components. So I personally was always the most technical person in the room, but even if it was by just a little bit. Yep. And um, that gave me the confidence to launch out on our own because I knew that companies needed that. Yeah, and it it was such a weird like I, I I'm old enough that I actually remember when there weren't apps yeah. and there weren't phones. So you talk about like when we think you know 20 years from now people are going to be in careers that we haven't even conceived of. This would be a perfect example. So you know you probably didn't have any like training in building an app. How did you figure out how to do it? Yeah, well, like anything, it's evolution. You know, like the traditional mobile app is really an evolution of of web based apps, and so we were we we're making some of these things that you could call apps today, yeah, a long time ago. You know, and um, it's just 
it gets a new face and a new usage, but it's really the same technology. So um, I think it's I think apps are just a way to solve problems, and you know we as uh, as a group of technologists have been solving problems for a long time. When you like meet with a client, it's always so you know I have a website and it's basically a WordPress site, but. When you meet with a client, you know, there's the design piece of what you want something to do technologically, and then there's the coding piece of what you want. And it's, to me, really fascinating that those usually aren't the same people doing those things. Right. So it's really like a collaborative team approach. You know, how do you all get on the same page? Is It, it seems really hard. It is really hard, and I think you kind of hit our differentiator right on the head, um, because one of the things that we wanted to do when we set out was to create a team that was very integrated between the, the design um, or the user experience, is industry speak for yeah. that, um, and the back-end technology. Uh, and that can be very deep. It can be more than just a WordPress site. It can be uh, e-commerce, or it can be uh, custom apps, or it can be bots, or it can be AI, or a number of different things. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. That's augmented reality is bringing all kinds of interesting things into play. Yeah, both artificial intelligence and augmented reality. What's AI the difference? Are. So AI, artificial intelligence would be like IBM's Watson. Okay, um, like a literal bot that answers questions and interacts with you. And learns as it goes. Yeah. Augmented reality is um, a device that you can put over your eyes where you can overlay a virtual reality on top of a physical reality. So there's lots of different ways that our apps can be used, certainly. But the, the intersection between how does something look and what is the user's experience and technology and how it does things is a, is a very hard spot to play. So we've worked very hard over the past 11 years to figure out ways to make that as seamless as possible, to really live in that intersection. And I would think, you know, it's hard enough. I do some social media for clients, and it's hard enough to keep up with, like, all the algorithms and what's changing and what are the best practices in that sphere. I mean, you have to have that in spades. Certainly. Yeah. We have subject matter experts across our team. Right. So um, it's impossible for one person to stay current on everything. And even within our space, we we have certain areas that we really specialize, that we have partners pull us in for. And conversely, there's other areas that we might not be as strong in that we'll pull some of our partners in for as well. One of the things we saw in the 2007 um, recession was a lot of agencies condensing getting smaller, using a wider freelance pool. Do you think that's something that we're still seeing as much today? Yeah, well, you hear a lot about the gig economy, right, and things trending that way. We've intentionally kept a significant portion of our workforce as contract freelance help. So of our 30 team members, 10 of them right now are freelance or contract. And that allows us, like you said earlier, to bring in specialists Mm -hmm. when, when we need them and also helps with fluctuations in work. Right. So when we have full-time positions, we know that they're full-time for, for many years to come. And then we, we're allowed to bring in other individuals as needed, kind of flowing in and out through that environment. Is it hard to manage? Um, so how many people do you have now? It sounds like you have... So we have 30, uh, 20 full, yeah. full-time equivalencies and then 10 contract. Is yep. it hard to manage contract, some contract employees? Do you find that they stay loyal or are they... Yeah, it, it takes time to build relationships like any other way, and there's a certain percentage of folks that are going to rotate out quickly. But over time, we built a pool of individuals that are very committed and long-term. And I think talented people attract other talented people. Mm-hmm. 
So by working very hard to build a talented team, it's attracted talented contractors to the mix as well that, that want to stay around for a while. Your uh, wife, I should ask her yeah. name. Her name's Stacy. Okay, yep. Stacy. Is she still in the business and still your partner? Correct. Yep. How, how do you differentiate, like, does she have an area that she's a specialist in and you have an area? Yeah. So early on, um, we started off kind of pre-creed with doing freelance work ourselves. Okay. So she's a designer by background. I'm a developer, and so it it made us uh, very like nice the pair. Dream team, yeah. <laughs> but what we quickly realized is there's folks that are a lot talented at each of those disciplines than us, um, and so we hired those people to to make our, our work even stronger. And over time, it's just continued that that direction. So when, once the business was off and running, um, she shifted more to a back office role mm-hmm. of running the books, and then um, now four children into our partnership and marriage. Sure. <laughs> um, her main focus is there, but she's still involved from a strategic level on the board, helping make strategic decisions. Um, do you recommend uh, being in business with your wife to others? Um, I think it is very situational. Yeah. Um, we've worked out very well. One of the things that has been a real benefit to us is that by be, by her being so deeply involved, it's helped us make decisions together. So if I need to, for instance, not pick up the kids from school and record right. this podcast, um, she understands why and the benefit of that. Or conversely, if things are slow and I'm able to be around more or help out with things, um, she also understands that. Also, I've we've come to really uh, value each other's opinion and insight into decisions. Uh, we've developed a very nice yin and yang of of discussing different topics or different options and playing devil's advocates and um you know, I, I'd so rather impressed. have her. I'd rather have her on my team than many of the CEOs in town. Sure. Um, as a result of all the different uh, wise, wise counsel that she's given me. But um, on the flip side, you know, you, you do have to be pretty cognizant of defining work hours. I was going to ask, do you talk about work all the time? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we got we have gotten a good rhythm. The, the problem is when we do special projects. Yeah. So we we bought and renovated a part of a building in lower town here and she ran that special project and so you know we had to run our normal business during sure. work hours that we defined and then after the kids go down for bed that's when we launch into special project mode and that got a little overwhelming at times yeah yeah but we we figured it out <laughs> um when you think about managing your team uh at Creed Interactive why do you think that you're in a better position to develop someone's app than someone else because of that yin and yang of having the design and the tech component together. Cause is that really unusual? Um, it's not unusual that people say they can do it, but it's, yeah. it's unusual to actually have it happen. <laughs> um, the way we describe that is making technology that works beautifully. And the, the way that we've done that is by developing a team that is really all in and what they do. So what all in means is it's a wholehearted and passionate team of individuals. Okay. This is all yeah. like super good yep. and I believe you, but what if you have like Stacy over in the corner and she's having a bad time and she's mm-hmm. kind of, I'm just, she's not doing what you want or she's kind of a loser. Does the team like in a wolf pack, the team sort of circles and they sort of get rid of that person in it. It's not even spoken. It's just, they move on without that person and that person right. eventually goes away. Is that kind of how that works in a highly functioning team? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, there's in a small organization, there's not a, room, a lot of room to hide. Yeah. Right? And in a and big it, agency, sometimes you have the Stacy's, the Steve's will just, so it's gender neutral, but you know, like sometimes you just have the person that 
you know, doesn't want to be there or they aren't really interested in growing. They're just kind of sitting on their laurels, as it were. Yeah, we've had plenty of individuals self-select out. Yeah, that's what I... Right. <laughs> Even in the interview process, that becomes pretty clear. Uh-huh. When you have a passionate team of individuals, um, people that lack that passion don't really want to be around that because it exposes them, you know, and it, it, it attracts the so talented individuals. So do team interview so that they have we do. exposure? Yeah. And that is, people sometimes freak out in a team interview. They don't do as well. We have had one individual just leave in the middle of interview. <laughs> just like, okay, thanks. This isn't working for me. Right. Bye. Obviously, like he was not looking for what we've created. Um, and that's fine. You know, we don't need to be all things to all people. We want to have a talented team that attracts other talented people. And, and then, you know, pulling people in from our network over the years, we've developed lots of relationships with other individuals and, uh, and hiring those individuals and pulling them into our fold is usually the best place for us to start. What is a good benchmark for a fairly standard app these days? And I know that apps are all over, all over the board and do different things, but generally small business person, needs to buy, put an app together, what is that going to look like cost-wise? Yeah, for a mobile app, it really can range, as you would expect. You know, you can have a, a $10,000 app. Um, you can have a million-dollar app or right. higher, and we've developed many things in between. So it, it really depends on on what the, the need is. For a small business, there's lots of tools out there that don't necessarily require you hiring a firm like us. Mm-hmm. Um, there's... There's different kits that you can use to develop your own apps if they're relatively straightforward. Or there's platforms that you can build on top of that really streamline the process of making an app. So if you're um, a business person and let's say you're under $5 million a year, because that's probably most of the people that we talk to, what would you say is the first thing for them to think about in terms of uh, putting an app together? Why they need it. Um, a lot of small businesses can do much more with their their websites and a responsive website yep. than they think they can. And just even looking at your own phone and scrolling through, how many apps do you have there that you haven't used in the past month? A lot. Right? And and so just thinking through, is this something that provides value beyond the initial use? And or, a, a responsive website is different than a regular website in that it's optimized for mobile and it maybe does different things for mobile specific. Good distinction, correct. correct. Okay. Yes. Yep. And so just thinking through what what is the value and the purpose of that. In some cases, it does make sense to make an app yep. if you're providing value beyond your website content. In other instances, it does not. Or there's maybe an alternative way to deliver that same kind of content. When you make a website for someone, do you also manage the back end or do you refer that out? Because that gets like complicated too. Like I have this right. website now and there's a new WordPress upgrade coming and... I'm like, I don't know what stuff templates these were built on and if they're going to be supported in the new environment. Like, it's just, it's a lot. If you're running your business, you don't think about any of that. Yeah, certainly. That's really where the bread and butter of our business comes into play. The The bulk of our billings come from those types of projects. Um, so th- things like uh, if you wanted to integrate e-commerce into your website uh-huh. or start selling your podcasts or, yeah. or having uh, member-only content, those are the types of things that our team is very adept at at creating on top of these different platforms. So cool. Can you think of a project that you worked on that you're super proud of that you'd like the listeners to know about? I can think of lots. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we just had a, a, a share time at our Christmas lunch here today where each team member shared the favorite project of the year. Um, a number of people mentioned the Carlson School of Business. Uh-huh. We just launched a rebranded website for them and 
uh, having over 5,000 pages of content for, for business leaders really took a lot of thinking and, and critical thinking on how is this content used and interpreted and what is the calls to action? How, how do we want to direct individuals through this admission process? Right, right. Did yeah. you go to Carlson School? I, I did not, no. <laughs> how did you get the business? Was it like an RFP? And... It, it was an RFP process, yeah. Um, we were referred by doing other work through the university. Sure. And, when uh, you get an RFP, because um, this is always such a weird thing, too. Agencies get requests for proposals, and then they have to put together like a deck and a plan for how they're going to approach this business, and then they compete for the business. And like, how many times do you do an RFP, and then you spend all this time on it, and you don't get the business? Yeah, early on, it was a lot. Yeah, uh, you can lose a lot of money. You know, we've we've lost tens of thousands of dollars yeah. on a single missed pitch. Yep. Before, so over that has to just be painful. It is. It is. It's also part of the business. So you, you learn to understand that you play the percentages. Yep. Um, over time, we've become much more adept at identifying which types of opportunities are the best ones for us sure. to respond to. Because in the beginning, didn't you think like, oh, we can do everything. Right. Yeah. yeah. And you realize quickly that you're better at some things than others. Yep. So when we, when we see RFP, um, we, we look for something that would make us unique. And if so, then we respond in full force. Otherwise, a lot of times we'll shy away. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how many of those RFPs do you think you do in a year versus for referrals? Yeah, mo- most of our work is word of mouth and referral. Yeah. I-, I would say we probably respond to one RFP a month. Oh. Something like that. So yeah. it's frequent enough, but um, in the grand scheme of things, it represents just a fraction of our business that we bring in. When you look at interactive agencies, what is like, are there, what's a big interactive agency? Yeah, well, we're listed in the top 25 of, software development firms in the Twin Cities. Okay. And they, they range in size. I think the, the largest um, agencies are in the hundreds of million yep. dollars down to um, double-digit million or single-digit millions yep. of dollars of annual revenue. So it really ranges. Um, do you see yourself like continuing on and doing this forever as a creative person? You, I can see like at some point, like, oh, I don't know if this is what I want to keep doing. Or have, Do you think about that at all? Certainly. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think a number of our team members have said the day I stopped learning is the day I quit. Yeah. And we say, good for you. We want you to, you know, and so we're con- constantly looking for opportunities for our, our team members to grow. For me individually, my focus has shifted a little bit over the years from developing the apps myself mm-hmm. to identifying uh, potential talent and trying to develop the talent. So some of the, the deepest gratification I have is is bringing on young team members and advancing them quickly in their careers mm-hmm. and seeing that I help provide environments and some encouragement to help them realize their full potential. That is cool. So that, that's very re- rewarding. Another piece is the opportunity to serve and be involved in the community. So as technology leaders, it gives us a platform to help others. So one of the initiatives we're working on right now is with the city of St. Paul mm-hmm. to try to draw more tech talent into St. Paul and develop more people in technology in St. Paul as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're working with Mayor Carter on an initiative called Full Stack St. Paul that mm-hmm. develops these things. And that gives us um, an opportunity to, to use skills and, and our know-how in a little bit different way continues to challenge us as well. Are you seeing, um, for a while there, there weren't a lot of women in the technology industry and people were yeah. trying to grow uh, their base of women. Are you seeing more women and girls getting into the field? 
We are. Uh, there's still a disparity. One of the things that was interesting the other day is um, Stacy mentioned to me, uh, do you realize that we have more women developers than men developers? Like, oh, no, I didn't really realize that. Yeah. And that's fairly unusual in our field. It's something we've been very intentional about developing. Yeah. And, and not only just hiring women in the field, but identifying individuals with high aptitude and training them as well. So a couple of our best developers right now, one was uh, an art teacher yeah. at one point and did a career switch. And just the organization of education allowed her to be an excellent communicator and organize code very well. Yeah. Um, another individual is just a, a maker. She likes to tinker and make things, yep. which lends itself well to the development field as well. And this program. <laughs> and this program, yeah. yeah. You may, may have to have her on at some point as well. Yes. Um, totally kind of random question that I'm going to throw at you. And I usually say I don't do this, but I'm going to because if you were Facebook right now, and you had had this experience of, um, let's just call it misuse of data, because I think we can all agree that that's what it was at this point. How would you try to like instill the trust back into your users? I mean, we're seeing so much out of these social media companies that maybe didn't safeguard the data in the way that they intended to or thought they were or wanted to. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it's just a very large risk in general. Um, right now, the the one thing that is the greatest risk to our business is a data breach yeah. for any of our clients. Yep. Because if we did anything improper, we'd be liable for that. So it's something that we have a whole handbook written on, on how to manage data appropriately, and it's written into all of our contracts. We provide anecdotal training to each of our team members and always are discussing best practices. So when either a data breach happens or just the simple uh, misjudgment of yep. data, uh, it becomes a real problem. And it's something that many CIOs have been fired for over the years as well. So in response to your question with Facebook specifically to, to restore trust, I think the transparency around how they're using the data mm-hmm. is important and giving people control over that. You know, in the past, they've they've had sort of this hidden panel where you could turn on and off privacy settings and yep. that sort of thing. But I think they really need to be much much more thoughtful about what comes standard. Like what what is the default setting, and what is what does it mean to be an average Facebook user? What what can they expect? And, right. And then oh, being honest and true about that. And what the promise is, and I think that's where they've gotten into trouble because sort of all this sort of became uncovered, and then it's just been like all these layers, like an onion, that have been peeled back slowly and. You just are seeing more and more and more as a consumer or as like, okay, so I have a different view about privacy because I believe there really is none. And that thinking there's privacy is probably that you just don't know because I think everybody can find anything they want about you. But as a consumer, um, do you worry about privacy issues? Do you think that's something that um, we need to worry about down the road? Yeah, I think there's a give and take. And I think there's maybe a lot of education or a naivete in the general public about mm-hmm. what is actually known about them. Yeah, and they're like, well, I'm not going to... Uh, an interesting one that came up recently, and I had not thought about this, but I think it's a great novel for a book, was, you know, do you want to do your DNA swab for Ancestry.com or 23andMe? And someone's like, I'm not going to give my DNA up. And it was super interesting for me to think about. I thought about it for like a week. Right. Like, A, okay, cool. B, wow, does that make you weird or does it make the rest of us weird that maybe would do it and see like, what would the government do with that data? Who has that data? What does that data mean? 
It's just it got me really thinking about all the ways that data is used. Yeah, there's a story even this week that uh, about advertisers buying locations of cell phones. Yeah, and selling that data. And I think what a consumer needs to realize is that there's a give and a take. There's a trade. Yep. If you're going to trade for the convenience of letting someone know where you're located so that it can suggest restaurants near you, you also have to understand that they may use that data to to advertise to you. Yeah. And, and it's not be surprised of, by that. It's kind of ridiculous as a consumer to think that they wouldn't. You know what I mean? Right. Like, not all this stuff is free. It seems free. It acts free. But even, like, the U.S. Postal Service can get within, you know, 10 houses of your house. And they know, like, if you live in this neighborhood that you probably read these books, you probably watch these TV shows, all of that statistically based on your income, you know, what your neighborhood looks like, what your gender is, your demographic profile. Data is really just like such big business now. Yeah, that said, there is a balance with with privacy. You know, you, you have a reasonable expectation that you're not going to be manipulated. Mm-hmm. And so the, even the convenience of having ads that are relevant to you opposed to the the creepy factor of someone knows so much about you is a, is a fine line. And it's a conversation we have with clients quite often where we'll have data that they purchased or they accumulated. And the question is, what do we do with this right. data? What What is good use of data versus manipulative data? use of this data. Right, right. And, and some very interesting conversations come out of that. Yeah, and I think we'll, I mean, I think that's kind of the next frontier, really. Now yeah. the 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 jig is up. Everybody knows that data's out there, but how it gets used and, and the way it gets used and who gets to use it too. Like the whole healthcare thing feels a little precarious when you're really fighting, a lot of people fighting for is the Affordable Care Act or any care from the government, something that the government needs to provide. Yeah. And, you know, oh, you do you have pre-existing conditions? Well, right now, that's not an issue. But if the world changes and someone knows you have asthma, that is an issue. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. I think that is the new currency. If yeah, you will, totally. Data, right? Yes. Um, there's one client that we consulted with that had multiple offers to be purchased by large healthcare organizations because they had so much data on how patients use different devices. Yeah. Everybody wanted to buy them as a company, not for their services, which were very valuable, but for the database that they had. Yeah. Because they had data that no one else had. And as a result, their valuation skyrocketed. Yeah. Did they sell? They haven't yet because they want to make sure that data is used for good rather than evil. Good for them. Good for them. <laughs> yep. Well, it's been really fun to talk to you. Uh, thank you for what you do and for being in uh, St. Paul because that makes me happy. If we can bring more tech to St. Paul, that means more jobs. and more restaurants and just more recognition of St. Paul in general, right? Yeah. Well, thank you for promoting us and, and for the show and bringing people to the limelight here. I appreciate yeah, that. It's, I'm with Jonathan Anderstrom, and it is Creed Interactive. If you guys need web development or apps, you should check them out. Thanks.